Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast about children's mental health and emotional well-being. I'm Dr. Leah Gagino, a primary care pediatrician, and I created this podcast for the pediatric medical community and anyone who cares about children's behavioral health. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. Hey listeners, welcome back to another episode of Pediatric Meltdown. And today's episode is a call to action for pediatricians everywhere. It is really, really important that we get the vote out and put kids first. My guest today is Dr. Pam Shaw, who is a professor of pediatrics at the University of Kansas Medical Center. She is the Associate Dean for Medical Education and has served as the President of the Kansas Chapter of the American Academy of Pediatrics and completed six years as District Chair for the AAP. Currently, she is the Chair for the Committee for State Government Affairs, also known as COFCA. Her undergraduate degree was in biology at the University of Kansas. She attended medical school and did her pediatric residency at the University of Kansas as well. After experiencing private practice, Dr. Shaw returned to the University of Kansas in 1990, where she has been involved in the teaching and practice of general pediatrics. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Shaw. Hey, Pam, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you, Leah? I'm great. Thank you so much for joining me today. I think this is a really important topic and off the heels of our recent AAP National Convention and with the upcoming election, I think that this is a a perfect topic. So before we dive into advocacy, I just wanted to have an opportunity for you to tell us a little bit about your journey and how you got into pediatrics. I'm happy to talk about that because it's a little bit unusual. (laughs) I grew up in a small town in Southeast Kansas, and I was a first generation to go to college in my family. And so there wasn't a whole lot of information about what I could do or career or any of the things that many students have now. So when I went to college, I thought I was going to be an elementary school teacher. And luckily, in the first semester of college, I went into a classroom as part of a shadowing experience, and the teacher did a great job. She was doing really amazing work with all these students, and I I quickly learned that I did not want to do that, however, as my <laughs> aspiration. It was like one of those moments of epiphany moments, right, where you go, oh my gosh, and so I went to see my advisor, who they assigned me to, who was in education. And she had my file and everything in front of her. And she said, you know, you're really good at math and science. Um, have you thought about pre-med? And I kind of looked at her and I said, well, no, I, I hadn't thought about that. She says, well, I think you should take some basic science classes here in college and, and see what you think. And I was hooked. I loved the biology, the anatomy, the chemistry, all of that. And I also had an opportunity to work during the summer in a facility for children with genetic disorders like Down syndrome and Rett syndrome and some other things. And again, I realized this is really what I want to do is to work with children in a medical care type of area. So I changed my major and, you know, decided to go into pediatrics, went to medical school and I did keep an open mind. I loved OB. I thought, well, maybe I really ought to do OB instead. And very wise OB residents said, 
you'd be a great OB, but when the baby's born, you immediately go to the warmer. You really not paying attention to mom. <laughs> I said, well, I hope I don't get a failed because of that. <laughs> she, she would again said, you know, we just know that our specialties are connected. So she said that I think that you'll be a great pediatrician. So that's how I ended up in pediatrics and how I ended up in medical school. Well, and glad that you did. And two things come to mind. One is that's the point of college is not necessarily knowing what you want to do and being exposed to different experiences and educators and kind of finding your way, right? Because when you're 18, maybe you don't know what you want to do. And then the power of saying to someone, have you ever thought about, which I think, Mm -hmm. especially as we're trying to get kids in the pipeline for the workforce to diversify, saying that to all of our patients, hey, have you ever thought about? I mean, that was why I went into medicine. I had a a teacher when I was a senior in high school, and she said to me, have you ever thought about being a doctor? I was like, oh, okay. I thought I wanted to do OB too. (laughs) (laughs) Until I did my rotation in peds, and I'm like, nah, peds is a better fit. So yeah, yeah, we do find our way. Yes. Glad we found our way to that. Well, let's talk about one of your passions and love, and that's advocacy and kind of how you got into that at the national level with the AAP. And, you know, a lot of us think of our work as pediatricians kind of in that one-to-one relationship with the kiddo, like whether it's in the exam room, in the hospital wards, in the surgery suites. But, you know, advocacy is kind of beyond that one-to-one and and sort of that higher level. So why is it so important and how did you get involved in that national level? Thanks for asking that because I've pondered this for a while now as to what kind of lit my fire with this passion. And, and my first job at the university was working at the public health department in a pediatric clinic. And I did that three half days a week. And what I was seeing is very vulnerable children with lots of social determinants of health that were not being met, who basically, even before we were calling that, were having lots of ACEs and then having the, the later effects of that as well as their family. And it really uh, opened my eyes as to how those things interacted in their health, not only their physical health, but their mental health as well. And that there were things that we could change. I mean, just getting them coverage, Medicaid and or CHIP at, at the time that was still being set up and getting them insurance, getting them involved in WIC, all of the programs like parents and teachers. So it was like, I can take care of their health, but if they're actually going to thrive and do better, I have to advocate for them to be able to be involved in programs that I know work to make them healthy in all ways in life. And so I started getting involved with the Kansas chapter where I practice because they that was one of their main focuses was advocacy for the children in Kansas and to make their lives better. I started the advocacy committee for the chapter. There wasn't one before. And we took on projects. We decided, you know, what the project that we want to work on. So that's really how I got started was just seeing the need in the children that I was caring for and understanding that they and their feelings weren't necessarily a setup to advocate for the things they needed, but I could. 
because I had both the knowledge and the skills and contacts that many of the families did not. I think that's really important, particularly as we, you know, head into the election season is keeping kids at the foreground and, you know, using our individual votes, but also our collective um, call to action to make a difference for kids. Well, can you talk a little bit about national advocacy? I guess I'm thinking, you know, sort of federal advocacy and where the AAP and where pediatricians can fit in. Yeah. And um, the national advocacy starts with our office in Washington, D.C., so we have a office that is filled with experts in lobbying for children's issues who also have uh, lots of background in all of the children's issues, but the ones that we care about for our children. We also have experts in, in media and how to present ourselves to both legislators and to the media, which is important because as a pediatrician, you might have the passion, but sometimes you need some skill and some skill building also. The Washington office was actually started back in the 60s as Medicaid and CHIP were rolling out and the need for a voice for children that were going to be involved in these programs that people didn't really think about, you know, how children's needs would be met by these programs as well. So the national office is in Washington, D.C. with our lobbyists. But more importantly, we have a Committee on Federal Government Affairs, LACOFCA, which is made up of pediatricians from across the country who have had the advocacy skills, who have used the advocacy skills, who can give lots of advice and also wisdom to the staff in Washington, D.C. to move the needle on children's issues. So not only does LACOFCA have pediatricians on it, but it also has liaisons from all of the important, like child health financing, our NAPNAP colleagues, the Children's Hospital Association. So it's all about coalition building because, especially for children's issues, you need lots of organizations working together to make the issues forefront for our legislative colleagues who are working for us in D.C. I think case in point, when you're talking about that collaboration, something that comes to mind in the last year was when the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, and the Children's Hospital Association came together and said, we are declaring a national emergency on children's mental health. And, you know, that was a huge splash and has been referred to many times by the media. And then I think following that, the Surgeon General then issued a statement. So um, we do make yeah. impact. And it, it is with those coalitions that we can change things. And another example that has the, a mental health focus to it as well as we recently were in D.C. for the Committee on Federal Government Affairs meeting, and we called on our representatives, our senators, and our local representatives uh, to talk about the McVie program because it's an evidence-based program for home visiting for postpartum moms. And we know postpartum depression affects children as well as, as moms. And we were asking for them to renew the funding because it was going to run out at the end of the month. And then there was a unanimous vote um, in the House of Representatives. And, you know, not many things are unanimous in our government right now to forward the funding for this program. And they mentioned that the visits from pediatricians made a difference in getting the funding. So the, the legislature in general likes to have pediatricians call on them. And we're talking to most of the time to the staffers for our legislators, but 
because we're asking for things for children. We're not necessarily asking for things for pediatricians. Sometimes we do for pediatricians as well. It's really important that we focus really on what what the children's needs are. And sometimes that helps pediatricians as well. Um, Obviously, when we're talking about reimbursement issues or payment issues, and also for, and in this case, for a mental health concern, for staffing issues because we need to work collaboratively again with our uh, child psych behavioral health folks to provide care for these kids. And the way to do that is to work together to serve the children and to come to the legislature with ideas of how to do that. Well, and much of what we do, I mean, I know there's some contentious issues, but much of what we do is a bipartisan concern. I mean, we care about kids and making sure that they're eating and have safe places to live. And I think another case in point was Uvalde shooting when Dr. Guerra went and testified, you know, and what an impact then when I think there were three or 400 pediatricians that sent in testimonials that were then read into the record. And, you know, again, our voices, our stories are very powerful. People listen to those stories and, you know, know that that's where our heart is. Uh, And again, I know not all of the stands that the AAP makes are popular across the board, but many of them are. Yeah. And and usually, no matter what, if you're calling on a legislature and you want to talk about children's issues, they they will listen. They may not like to support the funding for some of the programs, but they do understand that we as pediatricians are experts on what children need, and they're willing to listen to our expertise to um, understand the issue that children are having right now. And so one of the things that we teach in the advocacy conference is that those skills are important for even trainees to understand that as trainees in pediatrics, you are experts on children and your voice is really important. Um, No matter what level you're at, whether you're a trainee, a resident, a medical student, a fellow, um, a attending for 30 years, your voice is heard because you have those stories. You have those things that you can talk about your patients and how certain things are affecting them. And that makes it a powerful voice in the legislature, whether it's national, state, local, community, school board, et cetera. And I think that that's a really important point and kind of a shout out to any listeners that are early career physicians or trainees is that even though you may not have had years and years of experience, you've had years and years of training and may know volumes more about children's development and needs over many of the legislators who do not have that background. So you are an expert. And and I think that's really important. And I know Certainly, our trainee section at the AAP is incredibly active. So for those who aren't involved, that might be a good place to step in. I also wanted to talk about sort of drilling down from that national advocacy and where that big impact. I mean, our president goes to the White House and it testifies. And so there is that big splash nationally. But then so much is happening at the states. And we see that across the country. I mean, the state activity is really high. There have been some pretty high-profile issues, um, things like transgender laws, um, reproductive rights, 
things that affect payment like CHIP and Medicaid and Medicaid waivers, things that are impacting the doctor-patient in-the-room relationship. And it varies so much state by state. So I would guess that state-level contact with those chapters is super important. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. And as my role on the chair for state government affairs, I've gotten to know the staff who work in state government affairs very well, and they are very knowledgeable about the differences between states. And sometimes, obviously, what happens in one state can be replicated in another, and that's an important piece of it as well. So if you have an advocacy issue that you've been able to solve in your state, like A good example would be postpartum coverage of Medicaid, and that is multiplying across the state. So if if there's a good template to use in one state, you may be able to use it in another state. So the chapters can share with each other um, their successes as well as, honestly, their failures, what worked and what didn't work, so that advocacy can be really drilled down to the local level. And there's lots of it. Everything starts local, and that's absolutely true. And one of the things that chapters can do is really cultivate members from different areas that those legislature belong to. So in other words, I live in Lawrence, so I can go call on the Lawrence representative. I'm not going to call on the the representative from Overland Park here in Kansas. I mean, I could, but not being their constituent, it's not as powerful as it would be from someone who lives in their district. So that's the beauty of state is they know that you are a voter in their district. And that really makes a difference for them if they want to be reelected, right? And so listening to your story, listening to your voice for advocacy becomes even more important because it is local. You also can make a lot of headway with folks. One of our chapter members uh, took care of the governor's children when they were small. So she trusted his voice when he went to see her about issues that we were having with Medicaid. You can have those connections because many times you may be the pediatrician for that legislator's children, grandchildren, nieces, nephews. So those, again, those local connections can help you build rapport and also help you to tell the stories of children that are in your practice because they're real life. They're people that live in their district. Yeah. And I think that chapter piece is so important because I think one of the things you said that really struck a chord was that you joined the chapter and started a committee. I had a similar experience. I had a passion and I said, I want to join that committee. And they said, well, there's not one. And I said, can I start one? So for folks out there, again, if you have a passion, there's a place for you. And, you know, just start. I mean, and that's a really great place to begin to do that work. And, you know, there are within, for example, a certain area of interest, mine being mental health, there is legislation that particularly impacts mental health. If you're interested in in other things, there are other funding streams that might impact that. So, you, you know, you don't have to be, you know, full on into advocacy to do advocacy, right? Right. Absolutely. I think that's a really important thing. And the the chapter is a great vehicle for uh, anyone who wants to be involved in anything in pediatrics, but especially in advocacy, because most chapters have advocacy as one of their main functions. And um, if there's someone who has a passion for it, who wants to lead, like 
legislative day at the Capitol or go to the trainee programs that talk about advocacy. Those are all great ways to get started on your journey of being a leader in advocacy is through the chapter. Because it really is, I mean, the, the national stuff is really cool and really fun, but the reality is everything local is what really affects where you live and where your patients and so if you can make a difference locally, then again, uh, nationally, there can be replication based on what your successes are. It's also important to remember that those local connections that you make, like in your, your local health department or your, or your state health department, will be critical for things that you want to accomplish for children in your state. And so the chapters are really a great way of every pediatrician getting involved with something that they really care about and something that they want to continue to do in, in their practice. Pediatricians are born advocates. We really, Mark once said, in the DNA of pediatricians is advocacy. And I believe that the A in the DNA. <laughs> you don't want to do pediatrics unless you really want to advocate because your patient can't. Which gene is that? <laughs> <laughs> we need to find that gene. Right. Habit. And replicate it. <laughs> well, and you said earlier something else that I think as people are thinking about, okay, where can I make impact? You know, maybe I don't have the time or energy. I mean, first of all, vote. But I think you also mentioned local, you know, whether it's you're involved at your school level, any place where you have a platform to share information, you're advocating. So if you're talking to, I talked to a group of parents about suicide prevention, advocating for them at that level, you can write op-eds. You may be, you know, the media sometimes will reach out to you if you express an interest. And that's where that connect with AAP or the chapter can be really helpful so that you get it right. Because as you right. said, you want to make sure that the message is on point and that you're not getting distracted by where the media may want to sensationalize something and you're like, yeah, that's important, but here's what I think. This is where I see the problem. And so you can redirect. And, and I think that's one of the things I learned from AAP was how to do that in a way that makes bigger impact. Absolutely. I think that is important to stay on message. And it can be a little tricky because as you mentioned, the media may want to sensationalize the issue. You know, especially nowadays, the media really wants to get a story. So they want to get a soundbite from you. So one of the things that the, the chapter and the AAP in general does is help you work with the media. You know, the media is going to ask you a question that is going to try to get you off topic. Then how do you redirect? Um, how do you get back? And you can even get that sometimes with a, a staffer for a legislator. So you're talking about a program I, for example, this happened at one of the visits. I was talking about a program that we were supporting loan repayment for those going into subspecialty. And the, the staffer said, but how are we going to pay for that? So I was thought during the advocacy conference that instead of saying, well, you know, you should cut this and do that. When I said instead, well, you know, I believe that's the job of the legislature to decide how to do the budget. What I want to talk to you about is why this program is so important and why it really will help children and families. So you can redirect them very quickly, but they will try to get you off topic, even staffers, not just the media. So it's important to, to get some training if you want to do those, number one, 
but also to remember that to keep on message, you have to have the message really crafted for you. Sometimes in the chapters can help with that as well as the national. Right. Well, and a lot of chapters may have lobbyists um, that can work with you. And I think oftentimes talking points are really helpful um, so that you're able to say, yes, that's important, but here's what I want to talk about. This is the information I have that I think could be so helpful. So, yeah, I think that's important. And also, again, just to really learn about how to do this, many chapters have advocacy days. And then also, of course, there's the National AAP Advocacy Day, which I believe is in April-ish. Um, so, April. yeah, April. Yeah. And it's really fun. It's really fun. And there's a there's just a lot of energy. Uh, you know, when you feel like you can make change, it is very energizing. So I, I love that. Absolutely. I did want to talk a little bit about sort of advocacy that we need to do on, for our own behalf. I think one of the things that came up at our leadership conference was advocating for pediatrician safety as they advocate themselves, but also training and payment that, you know, it does matter. I mean, we have to be able to keep the lights on to be able to do the work that we do. Can you talk about some of those things that that need to be you know, emphasized as well? Yeah, I think it really is important. And sometimes that gets overlooked a little bit about that there are things that pediatricians need uh, in order to keep the lights on. I think the pandemic really shone a bright light on how precarious uh, private practice can be, especially with the funding sources that we have, including uh, vaccine funding, et cetera. So the AAP advocated for a counseling code for all vaccines. It's not just for COVID-19. And so the HHS or Health and Human Services came up with a code and a payment system for doing vaccine counseling, which most pediatricians spend a lot of time on, some extraordinary amount of time, depending on your patient and family. So those kinds of advocacy issues not only help children and families to get care, but also help the pediatrician, again, to kind of keep the life on. And so those kinds of issues, uh, mental health parity, that's another really big issue. And now as we have this mental health crisis, it becomes even more important to have advocacy for payment for services that we maybe normally didn't do. You know, 20, 30 years ago when I was in training, we didn't do a whole lot of mental health in, in our offices. And now we're being asked and we're being trained to do more, to do ADHD, to do anxiety screening and, and basic treatment, to do depression screening, postpartum depression screening. All of these things have evolved over time and the payment system hasn't with it. And so we really have to advocate for pediatricians to get payment for the things that we're doing. And that's the basic issue right there. If we get paid for the things we're doing in a fair and equitable fashion, Medicaid rates being the same as Medicare even, as a payment issue, then it becomes easier for pediatricians to provide these services to patients and families and to not necessarily refer except for those cases that you need to refer to. And, and I can imagine... Or for, I guess. Well, and I can imagine in talking with families, 
who, I mean, this directly impacts. I mean, if you have a child that has suicidal ideation and you need to do screening and you need to do crisis work, I mean, it can take at least an hour or more to try and, you know, assess, assure safety, do counseling, arrange follow-up, all the things. And I think if parents are then advocating for their child to their employer, to the payer, you know, that that's another way that we're also empowering our patient families to be advocates. Because as you said, it's very hard to do the work if you're not paid for it. And, and that that's not, I think we struggle a lot with getting paid. We don't like talking about money. We feel like that there's no, that there's shame, like we should just do it for the kids. But you know, I mean, the reality is there are a lot of expenses. I mean, you mentioned vaccines. I mean, I think that somehow the idea out there in the public that we're making gazillions of dollars off of vaccines when in fact, I mean, I know we had to purchase a $3,000 refrigerator just to make sure, and a backup system generator to make sure that we didn't lose, you know, tens of thousands of dollars in vaccines. And purchasing and administering. I mean, there's a lot involved. It is not a money-making operation by any means. So, you know, and again, you know, we don't in general have procedures that generate big dollars. I mean, our work is often in, in counseling, spending time that we don't always get paid for. And even when we do use codes like screening codes for developmental and behavioral issues, you know, we may or may not get paid for those at all. It's shocking the amount. I think some of them will, the 96127 code for behavioral screens, I think Medicaid reimbursed $2.97, you know. I mean, it's something, it's something, Mm -hmm. but so... Yeah, you're absolutely correct. I mean, getting paid is one issue and then getting paid equitably is a whole other issue. And especially if you compare it to adult medicine and how uh, adults are paid. And one of the things that is important to advocate for is fair and equitable payment. And especially when you're talking about behavioral health and mental health, because there is a difference in payment for that. There are even levels of payment based on your expertise as well. So there's a whole lot of issues with how you code. And knowing how, you know, that's not really part of advocacy, but yet it is, is knowing what you can code, like you said, for a discretion screening, coding for that, and what you get paid are totally different issues. Well, and I know, and again, this may vary by state or by payer, that if I'm not a psychiatrist or a mental health professional, and I, you know, may code that I'm, or diagnose anxiety, which is completely within the purview of pediatrics, that maybe I won't get paid if it's if it's that diagnosis, which right. is craziness because there's not enough therapists and psychiatrists to go around to do that. So we have to be recognized as experts and paid. Exactly. And paid. And exactly. And it's important to our families because where else where are they going to go? You know, where are they going to go? That's a really good point as well. And you know, if there's one thing that I've learned after so many years of practice is that my patients and families trust me. And if I say, I really think you need to be on this medication to help you get over the depression that you're having right now. And I always use the model, which which, uh, Bob Block taught me a long time ago is, if you had a cardiac problem, would you take medicine for that? 
And the family says, well, of course. And I said, so this is a brain problem and you need a medicine for that. If you have this problem, you would take a medicine for it. And it's the same thing with depression, anxiety, many of the ADHD, many of the mental health things that we diagnose and treat. And, and, you know, over time, you learn that families, because they trust you, will have better compliance with that as well. And that doesn't mean that you can't send them for CBT therapy, which you should, and all of those other issues. But the reality is that they trust you to know what's best for their family. And that's a powerful thing when you're talking about a mental health or a brain disorder. Yeah, another analogy I like is I've often said it's like wearing glasses. You know, I mean, it's not like I get up in the morning and go, gosh, I wish I couldn't see, you know, I need to wear glasses. I don't love it. I wish I didn't have to. And, you know, I'm the same with my anxiety, which I have pretty significant anxiety disorder. And it's not like I want it, but I also know that if I don't take medication, it really impairs how I feel and I don't want to do that. So it isn't a uh, lacking of character or will, you know, these are things that are real within our bodies. And and I think giving examples like those are, are helpful. You know, of course, there's so much stigma. Do I tell patients that I have anxiety? And I kind of got over it. It's like, if I had diabetes, I for sure would say, hey, mm-hmm. I take insulin, you know, so I think we have to like have no shame about about talking about this. Well, I did want to talk a little bit about some of the other specific mental health areas. One that And I've talked about it a lot on the podcast and have had lots of guests, and that's child psychiatry access programs Mm -hmm. and, you know, how funding is so important. It's very interesting, these programs. They're now across all but four states, and I think those four states are working on those, many with chapter involvement. Those four states are Arizona, South Dakota, Idaho, and Ohio. And so now that there are federal HRSA funds, um, which was a bill that we were also working on, but each of those programs are funded differently state mm-hmm. by state. Mm-hmm. Some are partly grant funded. And they're set up differently too, yeah. Exactly. So I think for a lot of, of state programs, if they had state funding that was a line item, and not necessarily something that had to be approved year to year, you know, because these need to be sustainable and not dependent on grant funding. Absolutely. So that's one that comes to mind for me. The other is workforce. And in Michigan, um, there's some loan repayment now for folks that pursue mental health, like for therapists, because we know we need those. And that may apply to those that go into child psychiatry as well. Integrated behavioral health, I think that we need to advocate for mental health professionals in all of our practice locations, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's in the hospital um, or in subspecialty offices or primary care. So any thoughts on any of those sort of, you know, high level mental health issues? Absolutely. A couple of thoughts that come to mind. I think sharing information between states is very helpful. And that's one of the the functions that the Committee on State Government Affairs can help states with. What works well in one state may not work well in another. And that's why each state has set up their own system. But some of the successes, I think, should be duplicated. And some some of the failures people can learn from as well, what works and what doesn't work. We're going through that in my own state as well. The system doesn't work as well as what 
it could for those in private practice because it's centered in the academic health center. And sometimes, as you know, sometimes that is not as easily accessible as what it should be. So there's a lot of learning points for different programs across the state for those first funded thing. The thing that you said that it's so important is sustainability because you can't start these programs and then when the grant funding falls off, everybody quit doing it. You have to have a way of making this work work. So whether that is working with payers or the state itself to set this up so it's sustainable, that is the most important piece of those programs. The integrated behavioral health is the model that works for large practices and for academic health centers and other folks who is like manna from heaven that, you know, people, oh my gosh, it's wonderful to have you here. It's so wonderful to have those resources available. Life life altering for me. I think that's exactly the right word, life altering. But for someone who's in private practice, and maybe you have three practitioners, it may not be practical. So what do you do for those folks? Again, I think you can use the model. Um, Who do you collaborate with in your private practice for these kinds of things? How do you work that out? Maybe they come in once a week. That was what the small practice in Lawrence did. They brought a behavioral psychologist in once a week, and they saw all the patients who needed to be seen. It became two days a week pretty quickly, but they were then in the office and predictable for them. So you can do that. You can make those collaborations work. You can make that work with a tiny local community mental health center even. Um, How do you make it work for the patient? The the thing is, it it needs to be cohabitating if if at all possible. They need to be available in your practice. So again, that's a different kind of funding. And we need to advocate for how those folks can get paid equitably to do that because the practice can't underwrite it. I mean, we know that private practices are meeting their margin most of the time, but to add on paying a behavioral health person as part of the practice is not feasible. So how do we make this work for practices across the country? And there's ways of doing it, but we'll have to be creative. So I did a podcast on financing integrated behavioral health, and this private practice in Virginia did just that and very successfully. So there are ways you have to get really, really good with using the codes, working with payer contracts, Um, Some of the child psychiatry access programs actually have made arrangements with payers to do a per member per month uh, fee Mm -hmm. that then goes to the program. So that's one thing. One thing that I did that worked really well until we were able to get system support, um, I worked with a group of clinical psychologists from our local university who needed an external practicum. They needed hours Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. I needed help. And so it was a win-win. I, you know, it was free to me. Um, We had to work out some things on supervision, but so for, for folks that are out there that have access to colleges where they may have a social work program, psychology, you know, they need those hours. And for a lot of them, they can then go on to other careers in integrated behavioral health because it's going to be the wave of the future. Absolutely. I mean, I can't imagine that people are going to be able to function with what we're going to need to provide for families as far as support is concerned without integrated behavioral health, a social worker or a parent's teacher's person, somebody who uh, can provide those supports for parents. That is really the 
what we need to advocate for the next 20 years, right? It's to have those full-stop services available for families because we know that's that's the tipping point, right? Is if families have these services, they can go on and be resilient and do the things that we want, especially our most vulnerable children, to be able to do. And it's not always long-term therapy. I mean, that's not really the role no. of integrated behaviorals. Often it's maybe four to eight sessions. You can bill for those sessions. And as you said, you know, the patients are right there. For them, it's coming to the office. It's not going to a mental health facility. I'm, I'm coming to my doctor's office, and this is a service my doctor provides. And so mm-hmm. I'm lending my relationship with a patient to the relationship with the mental health professional, and they're right there. And, you know, when we make referrals to mental health outside of our offices, huge percentage of patients never go. And if they do go, they may have two visits. It's really, really poor. And so that having that person right there when I say, can I go get them or let me step out and get my part of my team, I call it at the hip. It made all the difference in the world. So for me, that's a huge advocacy point. I think, you know, we need to focus on at the state level and and nationally too. Well, so many things that we can do, right? Well, I just wanted to ask you right now, if you had a call to action, how can pediatricians up their advocacy game? Do you have some pointers? I do. I think there's a couple of things that are really uh, simple to do. And the first one is to vote and to also encourage your families to vote. And there are ways of doing that at a local level as well as at a national level. So there's an organization called Vote ER that has resources for practices if you want to do that. Now, we're past most of the registration deadlines for many states, but it's important to talk about this, that one of the social determinants of health is voting because the way to change your local community is by getting the right people in those places of power who make laws and make uh, regulations. So that's the first thing is to vote yourself and encourage your families to vote. You can't tell them how to vote, but you certainly can make sure they're registered and that they vote. The second thing is, is to sign up to be a key contact for the AAP. And that will give you alerts on things that you can send letters, which are already pretty much uh, templated for you. And you just make it personal with a story about a patient that has those issues. Um, You can do that easily as a member of the AAP, and it's a five-minute way of advocating in a busy day. The third thing is to join your chapter, and that's probably one of the most important things. It should probably have been number one, but it was number three when I was writing them down. (laughs) The the third thing is to join your AAP chapter. As we've talked about, it is so important to know what's going on in your state and your chapter uh, does know, and getting involved at the chapter level can really give you not only a sense of camaraderie with people who are doing the same things you are doing, but also gives you a sense of that you can accomplish something because chapters do accomplish a lot in their advocacy efforts. Sometimes it takes a long time because advocacy is a marathon, not a sprint many times, but it is possible to make a difference at your local level. And there, there's nothing that feels better than, than a win for your patients in, in your community. Those are all really I think, doable things. So make sure 
everyone who's listening, November 8th, I got my absentee ballot ready to roll. You know, lots of states are already, you can go and vote. So it's really important that we do that and think about every decision, every bill that's out there that you're voting on. Is it good for kids? And I think that that makes a a huge difference. So I always like to close and ask if you could go back and give yourself advice when you were a resident, what would it be? It's a great question because, again, I was reflecting on that as I thought about it. And I think the biggest advice I would give myself as a resident is to be confident in your ability to take care of kids and to not question yourself as much, (laughs) which I think is part of that imposter syndrome that many of us deal with anyway. But I think understanding that what you know is important and using that knowledge to help kids is really important. Absolutely. I did a whole podcast called Imposter Syndrome. Yes, me too. So that resonates with me for sure. And yeah, I think it's important that we remember that we really do know a lot about kids and how kids thrive and our voice matters. So thank you so much for your time today, Pam, and for all the work that you do on behalf of kids. And um, I, I really appreciate everything you do. Thank you, Leah. It's a great opportunity to talk about things that I really love to do. (laughs) Have a great day. Bye-bye. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. I don't know about you, but I am inspired to do more. So here are my takeaways. Number one, thank you and a huge shout out to Dr. Pam Shaw and Kafka. Number two, advocacy takes the practice of medicine beyond the exam room hospital room, OR, or ER room to the next level and looks for the factors that impact children's health, such as social determinants of health, ACEs, poverty, and racism. Number three, advocacy inspires systems change one step at a time. It is a marathon, not a sprint. Number four, National level AAP advocacy follows a long tradition beginning in the 60s as the voice for kids. Number five, AAP staffers lobby for all things child, work with other organizations to build coalitions, and gather voices nationally to move the needle. Think healthcare funding and reform, the Mental Health Crisis National Emergency Declaration with the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry and the Children's Hospital Association that came out last year and is still being referred to. HRSA funding, for support of the child psychiatry access programs, and so much more. Pediatricians can get involved in the annual advocacy conference held in April. Write letters to congressional reps, and yes, vote. Number six, moving to the states. A lot happens here and is unique to each state. AAP state staffers support chapters and members as they look at their individual state bills and laws. Here, pediatricians can reach out to their representatives as constituents and as experts. This is where local patient stories hold tremendous sway and power. Number seven, a word about chapters. Join yours. Chapters can work together sharing what has worked and what has not. Belonging to your chapter multiplies pediatric power in your state. Consider Medicaid. What does your state cover? because it varies from state to state. You can promote sustainability for your child psychiatry access program. 
address bills that are good for kids and families and those that hurt them. Number eight, bring your passion to the chapter. Join a committee or start one. You are an expert. Number nine, drill down to the very local level. Your patients and families, start there. Remind them to register and to vote. You can join or attend school board meetings, city commission meetings, zoning and planning meetings. Why should you be there? Well, that's where they make decisions about green space and housing. Join a nonprofit like boys and girls clubs or your church. Just show up. Number 10, advocate for pediatricians. Start with payment. Medicaid payment should have Medicare parity. Mental health parity laws. Advocate for fair payment for mental health services, screening, and your very precious time. Advocate for your own education and training. Is ACGME doing enough to prepare our trainees? I don't think so. What about your institution? What about your practice? Advocate for fair pay, integrated behavioral health in your setting, and finally, real time off so you can shut off the damn EHR. Number 11. So here are Dr. Shaw's calls to action. Vote and encourage families to vote. Check out the Vote ER QR code information in the show notes. If you are an AAP member, and if not, join, sign up to be an AAP key contact and receive alerts and letter templates. The link is in the show notes. Register for the 2023 Advocacy Conference to be held in April in Washington, D.C. And finally, again, join your chapter. Yep, I said it. Join the Advocacy Committee and attend your chapter Advocacy Day. Find one call to action that you can do. And everyone, please get out and vote and vote for kids. Thank you so much for everything you do. And you are the voice for children. You are the experts and you are the ones that can support what families and children need most. Go out there and change the world. I look forward to you joining me next week. And as always, you can DM me on Instagram at Pediatric Meltdown or on Twitter at Gugino L. Thanks so much. And oh, you can also check out my website, www.medicalbhs.com. And I'm working on an upgrade. So look for something fun in 2023. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown, and I hope you found it as interesting as I did. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. Music was composed by Connor McHugh, and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero. If you would like to reach out to me, you can find me on Facebook at Dr. Leah Gugino and on Instagram at Pediatric Meltdown. I would love listener ideas and suggestions and hope to hear from you. Thank you so much, and I hope you will join me next week.